Hi everyone and welcome to episode 94 of SAMA, a program which invites an expert each week to discuss their area of expertise. This week we are delighted to have Dr. Pam Popper as our guest expert to talk about GI disorders, whole plant-based diets and the ketogenic diet. Pam is the founder and president of Wellness Forum Health, a company that trains people how to make wise decisions in health. She also serves on the Physician's Steering Committee and on the President's Board for the Physician's Committee for Responsible Medicine. <laughs> um, Pam was one of the healthcare professionals involved in the famous Sacramental Food Bank Project, which was set up to help economically disadvantaged people reverse their diseases and eliminate medications through diet. Yay. Pam has been featured in many wildly, wide and wildly um, distributed documentaries, including Processed People, Making a Killing, and uh, Forks Over Knives. Her most recent books are Food Over Medicine, A Conversation That Can Save Your Life. Pam is a straight-talking professional who is not afraid to criticise national health organisations, government agencies, medical professionals, pharmaceutical companies, agricultural organisations and manufacturing companies. And I'm hoping she's going to be gentle with me today. <laughs> so it's fantastic to have you with us, Pam. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. When I saw your resume, I thought, good gracious, you know, the things you've done in your life. <laughs> and you're still going strong. <laughs> you've done so many movies and, uh, and documentaries and books as well. Gosh, how do you, how do you manage to squeeze this into your life? And more importantly, why are you so passionate in what you do? Well, I wasn't usually um, passionate about other things that I've done. When I stumbled across this quite by accident, it really was quite by accident. Um, I don't know, just something switched inside my brain. It made such a huge difference for me. And I found, I think that this is a cause for me. It's not just a job. I mean, I'm just, I am very passionate about people knowing the truth about things and, um, uh, and, and being able to make better decisions about their health. I mean, my office is packed every afternoon with people who say, gosh, if I'd known then what I know now, I wouldn't have done what I did. I wouldn't have eaten that stupid diet. I wouldn't have taken that drug or had that test or had that surgery. And um, so I'm just on an all-out mission to get people to be informed, both consumers and health professionals. The health professionals aren't a whole lot better right now uh, so that people don't get hurt by healthcare anymore. Get hurt by healthcare. Yes, um, I was trying to think of the term as I was doing the introduction because um, one of the um, things which is in the introduction is you know um, talking about um, the uh, gosh where was it the trains why how to make wise decisions in health uh, but it's talking about medicine wise decisions in medicine is like it's a necessity which it isn't. Um, yeah, well, informed medical decision making. And you know, in the United States, it is mandated. The laws make you, um, if you're in the mortgage business or the investment business or the real estate business, you have to make full disclosures to people. You don't get to not tell them the truth about things. And it just baffles me that we allow the medical profession to not tell patients what their options are, including eating a plant based diet to resolve their health issues. And instead, tell them false stories about drugs and surgeries that are helpful for some people, but not for most. And then nothing happens to them as a result, except for people get sicker. I don't know if you know this, but the third leading cause of death in the United States is healthcare. The third leading cause between, behind um, heart disease is number one, cancer is number two, and the third is healthcare. Well, not, only counts, <laughs> not only counts the people who die 
in institutions. The people who do who make bad decisions and die at home, they're not counted in these numbers, or it might be the leading cause of health of uh, death. We're not going to be arguing on this one. It's an oxymoron, isn't it? Uh, medical healthcare. <laughs> Oh, uh, drug, 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 health. Oh gosh, gosh, gosh. Okay, and and also, um, I'm guessing that your diet is is it purely vegetarian, or do you supplement with some uh, dairy and meats as well? Oh, yeah, I need a vegan diet. I don't necessarily teach a vegan diet to everybody. I do think it's a good reason to get all the dairy out of your diet. But I've chosen to eat a vegan diet for the last 25 years, I think, and I'm pretty happy with it. It's, I didn't have to do it for medical reasons. I just, no. I'm one of those kind of all or nothing people. Um, in or I'm out. Okay, so I'm all in. And, uh, and I'm glad I made the decision. You know, it's done wonders for me. Well, um I'm, I'm also a, ve well, I'm a vegetarian. I haven't gone vegan. I'm vegetarian, am I? And uh, you know, I encourage other people to become vegetarian. But there's four different reasons. It's more for moral reasons that, that started um, rather than the health side. Because I, like yourself, I, I don't have the, uh, the health reasons to do it. But what was your reason? Why did you start to become a vegan? Well, it was it was actually an accident. I, I never really had any direction when I was growing up. You know, like some people want to be a teacher when they're in the eighth grade, and some people say, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a fireman, whatever. I don't want to be anything. Just you want to be know. a troublemaker. <laughs> Maybe not with him. And all the troublemaking skills I developed early in life came in handy here. But um, I was doing what most people do. I was in my late 30s, and I had a, a fairly high-level job, made a lot of money at it, actually. And, um, uh, and I just didn't take care of myself. I took care of everything but myself. So I was overweight. Actually, I was fat back then. Yeah. I ate a terrible diet. Um, I didn't exercise. And um, I just wasn't into self-care. And somebody loaned me a book written by John McDougall, and I was enchanted with it. I stayed up all night and read it. And that was it. It was like a, a switch flipped in my head. It's like, I'm going to do this. And once I started doing it, and I started reading about it more, I realized that people didn't know about it. And the more I thought about it, the more interested I became in informing others. So I ultimately went back to school and opened a business. And here we are, 24 years later. I, I changed my diet 26 years ago, started my company 24 years ago. And we're the biggest company in the world that does what we do. I'm kind of proud of what we've done. You've got good reason to be proud as well. So what was it that you learned that made you swing towards a vegan diet? Well, that? I think that I'm one of those people that I like to simplify things. And so for me, it was just easier to eat a vegan diet. I mean, I knew plant-based was the thing to do, but I just, I found it easier to eat a vegan diet and it makes everything simpler. It's just a simpler way of living. And so anything I can not have to think about and push off, it gives me more mental energy to spend on something else. So that was pretty much it. Uh, but I was convinced after reading McDougall's book that I was going to eat a plant-based diet. It's like, I'm going to do this. I'm fat. I'm too young to be fat and unhealthy and all that kind of stuff. So I did it. And then I started running marathons and people thought that something, I, I would run into people and they go like, what happened to you? You know, who, who did, where did Pam go? And who are you? You know, yes. so it was, a, it was a big change. It was a big, yeah. You go from an over, overweight person to someone who's fit and strong and, and healthy. Yeah, well, I'm 62, and I'll tell you, it's really nice. I have all my body parts. A lot of my friends have had lots of body parts taken out, right? Yeah. And I don't take any medications. And by the way, my father's 89 years old, and he doesn't take any medications either. 
Uh, so I have one convert in the family. It's him. And it's one of the reasons he's still alive today. Fantastic. Okay, so let's go into the, uh, the detail. The health benefits Ooh. of the build. Uh, well, what are the dangers of diet, of, uh, of dairy food, of meats? Well, dairy is a little bit different. Dairy is almost in a category by itself. And, and one of the main reasons why dairy is such a problem is, first of all, it's a product that's designed to help a baby cow grow into a thousand pound animal in two years. Right? So a lot of people coming to see us are well on their way to having that happen to them, you know. So it's of growth promoters, the protein load is too high. I mean, it's completely unlike the milk that baby humans should drink because yeah. milk is really species specific. Also, we're the only species that continues to drink any kind of milk after weaning. And that's sort of a bizarre thing. Yeah. So as a result, we're consuming something that really humans were never designed to consume. Um, the risks associated with dairy include increased risk of juvenile diabetes, chronic infections in kids and constipation, um, uh, multiple sclerosis, osteoporosis, um, autoimmune disease of multiple sclerosis, uh, breast cancer, uh, all reproductive cancers in women and prostate cancer in men. So other than that, it's pretty good stuff, but um, I, think, I think a good argument can be made to stay away from it. The problem with other animal foods is not so much consuming them as the, the amount. If you take a look around the world, you look at the Northern Africans and the rural Chinese and the Okinawans and they eat a little bit, I mean a tiny little bit of animal food. It's different depending on where you live, but the common denominator is that they mostly eat plants. They mostly eat plants. And so what's happened is due to the wealth that people have in westernized countries, what happened is instead of mostly eating plants, people now mostly eat animals. And we are, human beings are not designed to live on a diet that's focused on animal foods. Okay, okay. Um not all milks are equal. Uh, Jay Holland has asked about goat's milk, and uh, he, he's asking or she's asking. Well, one of the mischief makers, one of the mischief makers in cow's milk is casein, and people are surprised at this. But there's more casein in goat's milk than there is in cow's milk, so it's not healthier to consume products oh. made with goat's milk instead of cow's milk. Okay, well, that's blown that out of the water, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay, well, actually, in, I, I live in China, and, and China is, is everything's meat, much as um, other countries, I guess. Maybe it's just a, 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 a trend towards um, meats. The, uh, the thought here is if food doesn't have meat, it's a cheap food. It's not a quality food. So even if you buy a salad, a green salad, and it'll have flaking some meat over the top garnishing. So, hey, of course. Well, a meat-based diet, an animal foods-based diet is associated with affluence. So even here in the United States, when people just start to get wealthy, the first thing they want to do is they want to eat big, thick steaks and, um, you know, fancy, rich food. And so uh, Dr. McDougall was the first time I ever heard this. He, he said, people suffer from rich people's disease. They can go out every night and have big steaks and pork chops and fried yeah. foods and fatty foods and, and, and you know, it keeps me, people like me in business, but I'd be happy to find something else to do if we solve this healthcare problem. Well, it's a form of natural attrition, I guess, to keep the rich people population down. Yeah. Uh -huh. 
who didn't? I don't know. It's a, but, but it's a shame because um, people, if they knew better, they would do better. And, and, and I think this is a very important point to make because there's a lot of chatter about how lazy people are and they don't care about their health. And I have not found that to be true. And in fact, when we do um, programs in employer settings, we get about a 65% voluntary participation rate from employees when they see all of the information. In other words, doctors who are prescribing statin drugs and blood pressure drugs, they're not saying to patients, look, I could put you on a drug, but it has a lot of side effects. It's not that effective. Let's look at the data on diet. Look at, look at how long people live. And that's not what's being done. The doctor issues the prescription and the patient finds out by accident, like I did, yeah. about the idea that a better diet could put you in a better place. Right, right. Now, there's plant starts and there's plant diets. There's different forms, aren't there? Uh, there's even the ketogenic diet, which I'd like to uh, talk about today as well. Um, what are the yeah, so the ketogenic diet, let's talk about the ketogenic diet first of all, because it has some usefulness. And so a lot of the problems in healthcare, whether we're talking about diet or we're talking about drugs or procedures or whatever, is that there's a specific population that can benefit from some of these things, not all, but some. And so that's where the problem starts. So the, the ketogenic diet was originally developed for epileptic children. And the reason that it works is that it puts children in a fasting state for two or three years. And these are kids who don't respond to drugs. They're having 50 seizures a day. And yeah. it's been proven that if these kids eat this very high-fat diet for two or three years, a lot of them, about 80% of them, end up with reduced seizures or seizure-free. Now, the part that nobody wants to pay attention to is the child spends the rest of his life recovering from three years of living on pure fat, all right? And it's worth it because if you're having 50 seizures a day and you're never going to be able to go to school or have a job or whatever, it's a decent trade-off, really. And so you can deal with the gastrointestinal difficulties, the kids are nutrient deficient and all that. Um, another use for the ketogenic diet that's legitimate is because it puts people in a fasting state, carbohydrate deprivation, for long periods of time, it's sometimes helpful for people that have very aggressive forms of brain cancer, like glioblastoma, GBM. And uh, one colleague of mine here in the United States has been able to keep brain cancer patients in remission for up to seven and a half years using a keto diet. Now, one thing to point out, I want to talk about people who don't have these, these situations using the keto diet, but in order to do this right, you have to be testing your ketones several times a day. You have to be measuring all of your foods. Okay, so let's look at today's ketogenic diet. People coming into my office eating a ketogenic diet, they aren't weighing and measuring their food, and they're not take, testing their ketones. They're just eating fat. All right. And we like it in the beginning because it lets them eat a lot of stuff that they enjoy eating. But eventually they start to have problems, gastrointestinal problems, nutrient deficiencies. It's not a sustainable diet. And yeah. so first of all, they're actually not doing a keto diet. And the second thing is that it's unsafe when there are other methods available for weight loss and health improvement that don't involve um, taking health risks. So Dr. Dean Ornish has an interesting way of putting it. He says a lot of people adopt diets where they mortgage their health future for a few pounds of weight loss today, and it's not worth it. Right. It's a fad for most people. If it's for really what you're saying is that if it's for health reasons, good. When you weigh the, um, the gains against the losses, yeah, the, the the potential for danger, for the um, the massive you know as you say for seizures, 
you know, 50 seizures a day is just, it's just would be horrific. Right. In which case it's a no brainer, is it? It's the way to go. Exactly. When you're, when you just need to lose 25 pounds and, and, and if you ask people, this is an interesting thing too. I, I have never yet, and, and maybe tomorrow will be an exception to the rule, but I've never yet had anybody answer this question any differently than this. I'll say, well, why don't you decide to do the ketogenic diet? And they'll say, oh, my neighbor, he did it and lost 20 pounds. Okay. Or they'll say, well, my mom's doing it. She's losing weight. Nobody ever says, well, you know what? I looked at all the available options for how to lose weight and improve my health. And when I evaluated, you know, the plant-based diet, keto, it really came out that the ketogenic diet was best when I evaluated all the research. So the point that I'm making is that this and other fad diets really become popular, not because people check things out and research. It's because somebody who they like or they think they can trust says, hey, I'm doing keto. You should do, do it too. And they go, okay. And then the next person who comes along six weeks later about the time that they're getting tired of doing this says, oh, how about we do Whole30? And they go, oh, okay, I'll do that too. You know, so they, they go from thing to thing. And, and then the circles back around, you know, it's it, right now, keto's hot. If you'd asked me two years ago, we would have been having most of our discussion about the paleo diet. Which I'd like to still touch on. Now, we've, um, what you described those in very colorful detail is how I see society now, because people are watching these, um, these um, shows and watching the internet and, you know, social media is telling them this is the best, this is the best. And in my mind, I've got an image of a green farm paddock and mm-hmm. groups of, in groups of sheep in the wandering around mm-hmm. and they keep together. And then they, they, they um, you know, remove all the grass from one spot and they go to another spot and they go here and, and, you, and they don't go out and truly become independent. They become like a single right. unit. And no right. one, none of those sheep really know that in the next month they're going to become chops or whatever, you know. They're just absolutely blind. And they're not using, right. they're, not, they're not independent, they're not using their brains, they're not doing research, they're not, they, they, they can't see what's coming up. And so what you're saying is correct. Well, well, the reason, part of the reason is that it's never been stressed that there is a correct diet for humans or that people should do research before making a decision about diet, health, or medicine. In other words, you know, it, th- this is kind of something interesting I'll share with you. I was, I was talking with uh, another person a few weeks ago, and, and I thought about how I could be. I think I'm a pretty smart person. And so here I was, a smart person at the age of 38, pretty successful at what I did, who was fat, out of shape, on my way to developing some terrible disease. So how did this happen? Okay, so I grew up in a family of European immigrants, and I, got, I was taught a lot of very good values in my family. You know, you show up on time, you do your best. And in my mother's old saying, you know, if a job is worth doing, it's worth doing well. You probably heard that stuff when you oh, were Oh, well, yeah, but. <laughs> <laughs> education, the importance of education and working hard, all that. All right, so, so, you know, after acting out a little bit when I was younger, as it turns out, the apple doesn't fall from the tree. I ended up being a lot like my family. And, and the th- I'm kind of proud of myself. I did a lot of the things I was taught as a kid. Okay, so what happened with health? For all the wonderful things my parents and grandparents taught me, I don't remember during my growing up years five minutes of discussion about diet or health. Not even five minutes. When my parents went to the doctor, they did what he said. When we went to the doctor with my parents, they did what he said with us. And we just ate the food that was sort of cultural for our backgrounds. And and that was it. So it's not surprising that I didn't, 
take the time to investigate anything because it didn't seem like it was that important. And so I think everybody's kind of like that. And if you think about it, most of the people you and I know, if, they, if they're buying something important, they're almost anxious to tell you what intelligent buyers they are. Okay, I hear this all the time from my friends. I told that banker an interest rate was too high. And I told that realtor, I'm not paying that price for that house. You know, people, I went into the car dealership and I had already looked online. I knew what that car was supposed to cost and what the payment was supposed to be. And then we walk into a doctor's office and we just go, okay, whatever. Whatever you tell me to do, I'll just go do it. So a lot of what I spend my time educating people about, in addition to specifics of how to eat well, is how to become a more intelligent buyer. How to just take a deep breath and and um, and, and ask questions and and, uh, and and investigate before you do something, unless of course it's an emergency, you know. Because if you're in a car accident and you're oh. bleeding on the street, mm-hmm. you really don't want a big potato and a copy of my latest book or film, right? Then then you really want medical attention. That's the time for just doing what you're told. That's right. Many many people don't realize that the doctor you see is just a he's he's a worker. And there's plenty of workers out there. And if you're not happy with one, you go to another. I, I, I actually, um, this was driven home with one, one incident where I had a doctor that was, I knew was really bad. And um, basically their word was, was it. There was no questioning. And they, and they weren't going to educate me with more information of certain conditions. And so I went through about 10 different doctors before I found one that was open and could say to me, I don't know, mm-hmm. I'll look it up. And they'll get a book in front mm-hmm. of me and look it up. Which okay, they, they I have got their heart in them. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> it's almost like they've got yeah. a it's a false pretense where they know everything and, and what they say is not going to be questioned. They've got to be questioned. Yeah. Well, you know, there are good doctors out there, and and one of the reasons why I encourage people to talk to their doctors and leave if they're not cooperative is because that's how you find good doctors. And if we patronize the good ones, we'll starve the bad ones out eventually. Yeah. And, and I think that is happening too. I know a lot of people have told me, you know, they had a conversation with their doctor and it was just unacceptable. And they, they'll say, I'm not going to go back. You know, yeah. I'm not going to deal with somebody who's so disrespectful to me. I had a woman tell me the other day that um, she, I, this woman weighs like 104 pounds and she ended up running to the door and throwing her body up against the door. And she said, you can't leave until you answer my question. She goes, every time I come in here, you go running out of the room after two minutes. She goes, now you're either going to have to pick me up and move me out of the way, which I assure you is going to be very uncomfortable, or you're going to have to sit down and answer my questions because I'm not leaving until you do. And she said the guy looked at her like horrified because he really wasn't going to pick her up and move her out of the way. And he sat down reluctantly and talked to her. And it's a shame you have to do that because, again, using the analogy of buying other things, can you imagine if you're sitting in the um, bank office and you're saying, you know, can you tell me more about the interest rate and how long I'm gonna it's gonna take to pay this off? And the person said, I'm too busy, I'm on my way to lunch. So, you know, <laughs> just find the papers. You would, you would walk out of the bank, you know, you wouldn't let this happen in any other way. That's right. Yeah. No, we're definitely not going to argue during this talk <laughs> at all. <laughs> so, okay, um, back to the top diets. Now you are on a vegan diet. Um, Jay Holland is asking, what kind of diet would you recommend for other people? Is vegan the best? How do people decide what is best suited for them? Well, I think the way you decide about anything, diet, supplements, medicine, is you look at evidence. And so one of the things I learned early on is I got all excited about this and then I was going to go convince everybody. And that's not such a good idea because the more you convince, the more people run away. And it, it ends up being like winning 
about winning, not necessarily about diet change. So people will sometimes say, I don't think I'm ready to give up this or that. I tell them, well, maybe you shouldn't, you know, just take a look at the evidence. So we're big on presenting evidence. Now here's what I think about the best diet for humans. I think it's plant-based, low fat, high fiber. I don't think it has to be vegan. I think it has to be a tiny amount of animal food. We have some prescriptive methods for helping people determine that. Um, I think there are people who have serious uh, diseases that probably are better off adopting a vegan diet. If you've had a heart attack, you have a few stunts, yeah, you might be better off eating a vegan diet. But I think sometimes we let perfection get in the way of progress. And I'd much rather see somebody eat a not quite so perfect diet and do it for 10 years than perfection for three weeks and they quit. Um, another thing in terms of the perfect diet is, is it's just not about giving up animal foods. It's about choosing optimal foods. So like I get, I have people coming in my office and when you look at their food journals, it's clear that they're trying not to eat so much animal food. They've given up dairy, but they don't know what else to do. So they're eating a lot of uh, fast food sandwiches that are vegan, um, processed food, you know. And so what, what I, the way I tell people to categorize foods is let's think of them three ways. Okay, you've got three categories of food. One is the stuff you clearly don't want to eat, like oil and dairy. I think there are good reasons to give those things up. Okay. Then you've got the stuff in the middle. It isn't going to hurt you, like crackers and you know pastas and bread, that kind of stuff. You can have some of that. But nobody ever recovered from a serious disease by eating crackers, even if they're whole wheat, right? So then you've got the food as medicine. And I wrote a book called Food Over Medicine, right? So if you're going to use food as medicine, then you have to take the prescription several times a day. So most of your diet has to be foods that actually have nutritive value and healing capacity. So the way to look at this is you walk into the grocery store and you're at the pharmacy. And there's a class of drugs called leafy greens, and you have to take those drugs, right? There's a class of drugs called cruciferous vegetables, and you've got to take those drugs. And then there's a class of drugs called root vegetables, right? Like potatoes and beets, you've got to get some of this. So when you start looking at that as drugs, food as drug, this is the stuff that can heal up or protect my body. Most of what you eat has to be that. And so I, I think a big shift we have to make is going from the initial concept of avoiding bad things to shifting over to the concept of choosing optimal things. That's really what we have to do. A lot of what you're saying is common sense. Why isn't this taught during, in medical schools for official and formal training in doctors? Well, it's interesting. In the United States, the American Medical Association's website says that um, half of doctors enter medical school thinking they're going to learn about nutrition, and they don't. And most of them think that they're disappointed in that fact. But here's a little bit about medical schools that I think is interesting to talk about. So when um, residency was, in, was developed back in a lot of years ago, the reason why it was developed, and it happened at Johns Hopkins Hospital, is doctors were leaving medical school, and then they were going off to their hometowns and practicing on humans. They didn't know what the heck they were doing. So this idea of how about we have doctors practice under the direction of experienced doctors and then they'll learn what to do. And that actually was a good development. But let me tell you what's happened with residency over the years. It's turned into a way for doctors to practice, to turn to a pass down bad practices to the next generation and the next generation of doctors. So you don't see much innovation in medical education, including in the area of nutrition, because we're just teaching the same things from generation to generation. And many medical students have found out when they brought this up, you have to be really careful when you bring up this subversive ideas like, you know, eating well. 
<laughs> that you don't encounter the of people who think this is really strange and unusual. Um, but you know, the, I think there's an increasing interest in it. It's just going to be very difficult under the current system of, of education for doctors to make something different happen there. Right, right. Now, um, when you're a child, your parents almost said you would have said to you, you are what you eat. You might, did, mm-hmm. you, did you get that thrown at you? Because the other, other phrases I've heard of, that were thrown at me when I was a, when I was a child. So I'm, I'm picking you ahead. You're told this one. Now, everyone knows this one, you are what you eat. So how can... If you've got something wrong with you, it's the fuel that you're giving to your body. It's the... Well, think of it this way. The average adult puts a ton, one ton of food through his body every year. Wow. So it's, it's impossible to think that you could put a ton of anything through your body and that wouldn't have some type of an effect, good or bad, depending on what you're eating. Right. So... Food doesn't solve everything, but it's an important part of solving anything because of how much of it we consume. So we are what we eat to a certain extent. Um, And really, once you get into this field and you really study it a little bit, you can just go to any public place and look around at people and start. you can tell who's eating well and who's not eating well and who exercises. And people have a certain glow about them when they take care of themselves. There's an energy you can sense people's energy, and then you can see people that are just, they're working full time to just breathe in and out and put one foot in front of the other, you know? And it's, it's about the food. You can't possibly be a healthy, energetic person when the fuel you're putting in your body is garbage. I mean, think about what would happen if you put Coke in your car instead of gasoline. <laughs> it wouldn't run very well, would it? <laughs> wouldn't go very well, would it? Right. So you must... Um, you must have some foods, some obviously plant-based foods, which in your mind are like superfoods. The, the, the first go-to, if someone comes, into your, comes to you and they, you can see that they're drained of energy, they're, they're struggling to put one foot in front of the other, you say, right, I got, let's, let's take this, blend it or, or do something. What, what do you say to these people that have got no energy, they're looking very unwell, they need, a, they need a boost. They need these rocket. Well, the first thing is, I'm going to surprise you with my answer, really. Um, because it doesn't, we, I don't think that it matters if they eat superfoods or anything like that. They need to eat the plant foods that they're willing to eat. Okay. And I'll, I'll tell you a couple of things that, that this happens all the time in my office is people will say, oh, I understand. You know, I read your book and, and I know I need to change my diet. I'm willing to do it. But you don't understand. I'm really a picky eater. I'll tell them, well, what do you mean? Well, you know, I like to eat pizza and hamburgers and, you know, I just don't like vegetables so much and all that. So, so I'll interview them a little bit and say, do you like potatoes? Oh, well, yeah, I like potatoes. Bananas? Yeah. Apples? Green beans? Corn? Well, you start asking them questions and you can come up with a list of 20 foods that they like. I tell them, eat that. Okay. And, And so I think we have to be careful with the new people coming into this, that they don't get this idea that if they're not going to eat green apples and kale, that they can't get well. Because actually you could live for 55, 60, 100 years, never eat a green apple or kale and be just fine. Right. If you did, if you have the right dietary pattern. So what we want to do is we want to get people eating foods they like because they're really much more likely to stick with it. And then what happens a lot of times is once you get them doing that, over time, they'll get a little bit more adventurous and try some things that um, are outside the box for them. But in the beginning, let's not scare them. 
And I'll share this with you. This is how I learned this. I remember early in my career, you know, and I'm an adventurous person. You probably can figure that out about me. So as soon as I decided to do this, I'm like anxious to try red lentils and black quinoa and the whole nine yards. And so I got a little excited about the superfoods and all that. So I had a follow-up meeting with this woman who was trying to change her diet. She had a lot of health issues. I said, well, how's it going? She goes, it's okay. I said, well, what do you mean? She goes, well, I'm eating kale. And so, I said, well, it doesn't sound like you like kale. She goes, I hate it. I really? said, well, then why are you eating it? She yeah. goes, well, everybody says you got to eat kale. And, and so you could see that this is not a plan for permanence. I mean, nobody's going to make themselves eat food that they hate. Mm. I said, well, what do you like? She says, well, I like romaine lettuce. I said, eat that. You know, what else do you like? She, could, she was trying to eat some apples. She, came in, she goes, I like yellow apples. I said, eat the yellow apples. I said, just eat apples. I don't care what kind, right? And, and so she was so relieved and, and her, you know, she just cheered up about it. She didn't feel like it was such punishment after that. So, you know, it's wonderful that the more you do this, the more, um, maybe strict isn't the word I want to use, but over time I evolved to, make, to eat a much cleaner diet but in the beginning, we just kind of got people getting rid of some stuff and replacing it with something that they're willing to do. Now, you talked to one or two people, or maybe a few more, about their health needs during the course of, your, of, um, of a week. How, what sort of changes do you see in their health? Like, presumably, people that come to see you are at a low level of health. They've got problems. What changes do you no. see? You've talked about heart it's sometimes it's unbelievable. I'm going to tell you a story of one because this is so cool. So I work with a lot of people who have inflammatory bowel disease because I got interested in this about 18 and a half years ago. And I probably um, have read more research articles on diet and IBD and drugs and IBD. I mean, I have a lot of information on this and it's a long story how I got into this area of interest, but um, I presented a lot of conferences about it. I mean, I, I think I've archived 2000 studies on my server about IBD. So I don't know everything, but it's a big area of interest with me. So anyway, because of that, I get a lot of people coming to the office who, has, who have IBD and I've got a great staff of people who are really trained in this, a dietitian and nurse, you know, people who work with me who are good at this too. So anyway, we've got a great team going and a pretty good machine for the IBD people. So anyway, I had a person contact me um, and drove, I don't know, it took like a day to drive to see me. And this person said, the reason I drove here is I want you to know how serious I am about getting you. Like, I'm tired of being sick. I'll do anything, you know. I just want you to know I'm serious. I said, well, good, I'm serious too. So um, this person changed the diet. Um, was you know people sometimes are just really to get really ready to get well and he was so he changes his diet and um, uh, gets off of the medications and goes through the whole food reintroduction program he's doing really great and I always tell people what you're going to need to do is get a colonoscopy a year after you're asymptomatic to confirm that the mucosa is healing because you can be asymptomatic and not necessarily have the colon healing, healing up so he said okay I understand so I get an email the first of the year from this guy. This is really interesting. So he ended up having a pain uh, in his gut. He went to the hospital, and of course they assumed that it was his um, ulcerative colitis coming back. Yes. So they do a colonoscopy, and they then the guy who did the colonoscopy said, "This is really kind of weird." He goes, 
you say, your forms say, you have ulcerative colitis, but there's no sign of ulcerative colitis. The tissue had completely returned to normal, and this was oh. seven months later. And they found out what was causing the pain and took care of it. But the email said, I know you said that I had to get a colonoscopy a year after. This is only seven months after. Does this one count? <laughs> I said, yeah. <laughs> and we're actually writing this guy's case up as a case report to submit to a medical journal. So that was really cool. And then um, in Food Over Medicine, there are a couple of other IBD patients and one cancer patient, really remarkable story. Um, and this one, I'll probably cry when I tell you this story. But anyway, years and years and years ago, it's like very soon after we opened the doors, um, this woman came and she had leukemia and she was getting the traditional treatment and she was getting worse instead of better. Mm -hmm. And she had had infections in her mouth and she had no teeth that met. She couldn't even chew food. And so she went home from the doctor's office one day and got on her knees and prayed and said, if, if there's something I'm supposed to know about, I'm willing to do anything because I want to live. And the next day she met somebody who worked with me and ended up at our office. So, um, we, got, we were a young company then. We didn't have a lot of money. I mean, today we could have handled this differently, but our corporate attorney bought her a Vitamix because she couldn't eat food. We had to blend everything. So he bought her a Vitamix, and we had her blend everything she ate. She went on a plant-based diet, and she, her husband was like apoplectic. He told, she said, "If just let me do this, and if it doesn't work, I'll go back to the treatment. Yeah. So anyway, the cancer goes away uh, after goes eating. Huh? It goes away. Gone. Right. Wow. Yeah. So now the next thing is she has this mouth that's going to cost $30,000 to fix, right? Her husband was an iron worker and he had great insurance actually through the union. And so we helped her write a letter to the president of the union. And here's what it said. If I had finished the chemotherapy and then died, it would have cost you $200,000 for the chemo and the death benefit, right? What I'm asking you for is $30,000 to fix my teeth since I ended up living. And they gave it to her. They fixed her teeth so she could chew. So the next thing that happened, it just gets better. So the next thing that happened, when you have chemotherapy, women go into menopause and we can't have children. And she was in her 30s. And so one day she called me, this is like a year and a half later, and she says, Pam, I had a menstrual period. And she ended up pregnant. And she had a baby. The baby's now an adult, but anyway. Um, so every time she'd bring that kid in the office, you know, we'd all cry and all that kind of stuff. Because she never thought she was, I mean, she wanted to live, but she really thought the having children thing was completely over. And so she got to be a mom and all that kind of thing. So that's a really amazing story. It's in my um, Food Over Medicine book. Um, she didn't want her name to be identified, but everybody in the office knows who she is. So that's wow. what happened. And that's, that's your drive. You should have said this at the beginning. <laughs> this is why you do yeah. it. Wow. That's why I do it. That's why I do it. Because the people like that are victimized by the system. Nobody ever said, you know, the thing of it is, in, can in the cancer business, I know everybody's doing the best they can, but the bottom line is that when somebody sees that the treatment isn't working, they should say the treatment isn't working. You should be looking into other things, you know. Mm -hmm. And instead, they're they become so close-minded. I've had people that their doctors try to talk them out of eating well. Why would you talk somebody out of eating well? I mean, it's insane, right? I remember another oncologist. This is a wild story. This woman had stage four cancer, and she asked for evidence for the treatment he wanted her to have. And he said, 
we don't like to worry the cancer patients with that information. She said, well, you know what? I have stage four cancer. I'm already really worried. So you just need to give me the information. Mm-hmm. So when people are dealt with that way by the healthcare profession, I just find it a problem. With your attitude, with your terrible attitude, the health, <laughs> the, the health community must be not very happy, I guess, with this information which you're putting oh, out. No. No, I almost ended up being incarcerated for what I do. Wow. I'm not kidding. Yeah. I was pursued by the state of Ohio for six years and cost me a lot of money. I just came back from a conference in Denmark where the whole conference was about, and I was one of the presenters, was about scientific misconduct and fraud and the forces against people who have good ideas about healthcare um, and what it takes to the way that you have to stand up. Um, and draw a line in the sand and say, I don't care what you do to me. I'm going to do what I do, and I'm going to tell the truth. And, and I found a lot of inspiration at that conference because it's nice to know that you're not the only one. Like this, this one guy, he was a whistleblower, and, and um, he made it his life's mission to put this drug company out of business, and he did it worldwide. He got the drug taken off the market in every country on the planet single-handedly, and they almost bankrupted him in the whole nine yards. And, and the thing that's amazing, he's a happy guy. Like when you listen to him talk, he's got a great sense of humor. He's come through this god-awful experience, you know, that came out okay in the end, but it was pretty frightening going through, you know. And so when you meet other people like that, you realize there's hope for healthcare because there are principled people. You know, look at T. Colin Campbell, look at Caldwell Esselstyn, Neil Barnard. There are a lot of people out there who are basically saying, at whatever cost to myself, they can make fun of me, they can do whatever they want to do to me, but I'm going to continue to tell the truth and tell patients what they should hear about health. It's remarkable you're saying the case stories about you know, stage four cancer to be recovered just through going to a vegetarian diet. It's, it's just mind-blowing. And I assume that you're supplementing that with other vitamins or things that they need for their recovery? Not necessarily. Food pretty much does it. But I'll tell you something interesting that's even bigger than what I'm telling you now. So I have a, a colleague I admire very much. Her name is Dr. Kelly Turner. And she wrote a book called Radical Remission. And what this book is about is her research. She got interested in cancer when she was at Harvard and Stanford. And she, what she was interested in is that you hear these stories of people who have terminal cancer and they live, and nobody ever asks them how they did it, right? So if you read the stories in medical journals, the case reports, here's what it says. John M. came into my office and he had lung cancer. And on the left side of the page, you see the tumor, okay? On the right side of the page, you see the lung cancer. It's gone. John no longer had lung cancer. Spontaneous remission. That's it. Nobody ever asked John M., how did you do this, right? So she decided to interview a 1,000 cancer patients who had survived long past their due date and asked them how they did it. And what she found, these 1,000 people identified 70-some strategies that they used to survive. They all, none of them knew each other. They were all using the same nine. And you know what the first one was? Plant-based diet. All of them used a plant-based diet. Now, they did other things, too. But that's one heck of a common denominator for a thousand people all over the world who never met each other, right? Mm-hmm. So I think if you're going to survive cancer or a serious disease, you're just going to have to eat some plants. Now, a healthy lifestyle is not just diet. Diet is also exercise and other activities such as yoga and meditation. Um, do you encourage people to take on any meditation or, or increase their level of exercise? 
And oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, well, I have a great plan. My office is phenomenal. We have a hot yoga studio, an athletic facility, a commercial kitchen. It's like a playground for people who are into health. But yeah, I do. And exercises, you have to exercise. Humans are designed for movement. And until very recently, in the grand scheme of our life on the planet, we had to move around just to survive. So this idea of sitting all the time, not good for people, right? So yes, yeah, so you have to, exercise is important. You have to do it. Um, in terms of uh, meditation, I th I'm a fan. I find that people sometimes find it easier to do meditation as part of yoga practice than to do it as an isolated practice. It's easier for me that way. And Thank so I, I think yoga, I, well, one of the things I tell people, one of the reasons I'm not in the asylum is yoga. It really calms me. <laughs> I'll tell you something else kind of funny. At my office, you know, sometimes it'll be crazy busy and I'll say, I don't know if I should go to yoga this morning and you know, all this is going on. And you know what my staff says? You should go. You go and we're fine. You go because they know I'm going to be so much better for the rest of the day if I go. So yeah, I think that's very important. And people have to sleep and they need to drink water and they need to have purpose for living. And they, and they have to work at having a happy life. And I'm not talking about, you know, 24 hours a day, everything's got to go your way. But um, you have to, if you want to be happy, you have to work at it. You have to find things that you like to do and you're interested in and um, cultivate relationships with people, things that are important to do. Right. So you don't, don't focus on one small facet of health, which is the diet side. You take the overall um, picture. It's, it's, you know, I was, I was going to ask you actually about the happiness side because your soul needs feeding as well. <laughs> You've got yeah, you have to you have to do it. Miserable people get sick more than we have great studies that show this. Miserable people get sick more than happy people do. So yeah, and you and you have to you have to do things that make you happy. It can't. I mean, I work really hard, but I do a lot of things that would probably surprise you too. So. Um, <laughs> I read a lot of books and I belong to a book club and I go out to dinner with my friends. I love to see movies and go out to the movies and um, I help start our dance company here in Columbus and I'm still on the advisory board and I do a lot of fundraising for them and go to all the performances. I have a house up on Lake Erie that I spend time at in the summer, a little beach house. And I have a cat named Schroeder who may come in and meow while we're talking. He sometimes makes himself known to others. Um, <laughs> Recently, this is funny because I never had any talent for this, but I've taken up painting. Wow. Uh, so I go to class and do paintings. And um, so I've done four. And my, my goal when I went to the first painting class is I just didn't want to set fire to it when I was finished. You know, but I ended up wanting to hang it in my house. <laughs> I kept the bar really low. But uh, I have a friend, a co-worker and friend, and she likes to do this too. So um, every few weeks we go spend a night, spend an evening painting. And uh, so, yeah, I, so I do those things. And it, it, when I get away and I do that, then I come back to work and I'm really, really focused. And then the other thing that I would add is you've got to pay attention to the supplements you're taking, the drugs you're taking, the screening tests you have. Um, if, if you eat a perfect diet, go to yoga every day and you get sucked into the medical mill with people trying to turn you into a sick patient so that they can drug you or do something to you, you you're wasting, you, you've really missed the whole point of what this is all about, you know? Yes. Well, you're, you're not the sort of person I'd be asking, what do you do in your spare time? Because you do so many things. <laughs> Oh, so much. And so the really the question is, how, do you, how on earth do you manage to do all the things that you've done? You've been a, you've yeah. been a 
Um, I'm really organized. I'm really organized for one thing. And the other thing that you have to take, there are two, two mitigating factors that people should realize. I live by myself. Well, actually, I live with a cat. But um, I, don't, I have a lot of control over my time. And the other thing is that unlike some people in this field, I have a very big staff. And they're really good people um, who do a lot of the work and that sort of thing. So I don't have to do this all by myself. And that makes it, that, that's a whole different situation. So lots of help. You've got lots of help to extend your ideals, haven't you? Because you, you, you yeah. train them to how you want people to, you know, the people that are coming and needing help. So you can invite yeah. to help many people, which is quite fantastic. Speaking of which, um, and Jay Holland has prompted me, I wasn't going to forget your website. If you can uh, let, us, let people know where to go to for information. Yeah. So our website is wellnessforumhealth.com. And my email address is pampopper at msn.com. I answer all my own emails. Um, and uh, I send out a lot of free education, newsletter on Monday and video clips on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I have a thousand videos posted on my YouTube channel and you can subscribe and get them every week. So send me an email and I'll add you to the list. And then, um, yeah, so I'm pretty easy to find. <laughs> <laughs> Now, when you were doing your documentaries, that, how, how did you find that? Because that, was it, was it, was it, were you nervous doing them when you were being? Um... Um, yeah, so not, well, I'm not nervous. Um, the first time was really kind of shocking. Um, I did a movie called Making a Killing about the psychiatric drug industry mm -hmm. years ago. It was like 2006, I think, or something like that. And it was widely distributed. I got some attention for it. But then Forks Over Knives was the big one, you know. And uh, it's interesting how that came about because um, I had gotten invited to speak at John McDougall's um, weekend thing. And this was like a big honor. You know, I read his book. That's what got me into the business. He was always somebody I looked up to. And as soon as I had money to have a conference, I, I asked him to come and speak and paid him to speak. And I was so excited to meet him. And when he called and asked me if I wanted to speak at his conference, I thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. So I was so excited, you know, worked on my talk a lot. And, and Colin Campbell, was speaking at the same conference and by then i had also had colin come and speak here and so i was happy to see my friend colin okay so i didn't know it at the time but there were brian wendell the producer of forks over knives and a group of people that he was planning to work with to make a movie um about the china study had gone to the McDougal weekend to see colin campbell speak you know see if they like this guy well how can you not like colin campbell right? So they, so it, it was very exciting because they said they were going to make a film about Colin and his work and all that. I was really happy for him. I thought, gosh, you deserve all this attention. And so they asked him about me eventually. They said, there's this woman you were friendly with. We liked her. You know, we're looking for somebody to be a science editor for the film and all that. So that's how I got into it. I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And um, I never had worked on a project like that. I told him, I said, I never did this before, but I'm happy to do it. And I'm known for being a pretty diligent researcher and all that. So that's how, that's what happened. And then they liked me, so they put me in the film. So that's how that all happened. And then there were a lot more films after that. Maybe you've done so many things because you don't make it a habit to say no. You've really said you answer all the <laughs> you, you, you must you, Well, you, see, I suffer from this disease I need to tell you about. It's called F-O-M-S. F-O-M-S. It stands for fear of missing something. 
<laughs> so, so yeah, I don't want to say no. I want to do everything. Unfortunately, I have enough energy to do it. I can pretty much do it. <laughs> I just think, because I have a lot of interests, you know. Well, you, well, you have. You've done. You've done. Well, what's what's next? What's what's on the horizon? Have you got um, anything new hmm. coming? Oh. Well, there's always new stuff coming up. I don't know if you know, but we own a school. And so we, um, yeah, we're getting ready to, in a couple of years, we'll be like a community college. That'll be kind of fun. Um, so we're always bringing new programs uh, to our school, through our school. Um, oh, what else am I going to do? One of the things that is, on, that is on my list of things to do, in addition to just the never-ending list of courses I create and all that kind of thing, is I want to start an insurance company for healthy people. A health insurance company here in the United States. I've actually been looking into it. I have a pretty good idea of what, how we could do it. And um, people have thought about doing this before, but one of the things I have some business background, I was in business before I was in healthcare. Yes. And uh, so I, I do know how to make something like this work. And I think we'll probably do that sometime wow. in the next few years. Yeah. So so that, and then just doing all the other things that I want to do. I write articles every week. I teach classes every week. I, see new clients every week and you know just building our company that's that's going to be what i do i don't see myself retiring anytime soon <laughs> i can't see i i can't see it either or you slowing down <laughs> no 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 my mother had a great saying she said you know it's better to wear out than rust out <laughs> so that's my plan I think a lot of people watching this video after it's been published will be looking at you and thinking, gosh, is this what a vegetarian diet does to you? I'm, I'm in. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it's, it's a wonderful thing. You know, some people think this is a punishment for gaining weight or yes. getting sick or whatever. It's not a punishment. It's a great gift. And, and um, because if you don't have your health, there just isn't anything. You know, it doesn't matter how many houses you have or much, how much money you have in the bank or really the, the, the ability to do anything and everything you want to do in life presupposes that you're in a pretty healthy state. You can move around. And I have to share this story with you too. This is interesting. So um, one of my business partners is a pretty famous psychiatrist here in the United States. His name is Peter Bregan. And he's never placed a patient on a psychiatric drug. He actually talks to patients. You know, he's a wonderful man and he's been responsible for reforming psychiatry in the United States. So he's 82 years old. All right. So, I know, and he eats this diet. Peter eats a pretty, pretty close to the way I eat. Mm. So um, he also was presenting at this conference in um, Copenhagen. So we thought what we do is meet in Washington D.C. and then fly to Copenhagen together because it's a long flight. And so I'm traveling with this 82-year-old guy, and I'm thinking, you know, this is the first time I've spent this much time with Peter, so I should probably you know, in case you need time to do something, we can slow down. Instead of walking back to the hotel from dinner, we want to take a cab and all that kind of stuff. 82 years old, we didn't have to adjust anything. He just did what I did, you know? And so I thought, gosh, this is what I have to look forward to in 20 years. I'll be able to still do what I'm doing now. But yeah. that's that's what happens when you eat well. He's he's 82 and the thought of getting on a plane, flying nine hours, nine hours over to Europe and take a nap for a couple of hours and work for 15 hours and get up at six in the morning and do it again. And that it doesn't even phase him, you know, and while we're, while we're doing this whole thing, that was really a big deal in, um, uh, in Denmark at the time. Um, he was, uh, he's like on his phone responding to stuff and everything else. And, and that is what getting older is supposed to be about, you know, but you can't, you cannot function at that level at that age. 
if you're not taking care of yourself. You yes. just can't. Yes. Okay, well, I'll, I'll let you say the last word. If you can give people, in one sentence or less, <laughs> the best advice you can give them for their health or well-being or how to improve their lives in, in some way, what would you say yeah. sentence? Well, I think, I think the thing I would say is start now because this is one of those things. I know you said one sentence, but I'm going to take a little bit more time. This is one of those things that you, you, you can't, people wait until something cataclysmic happens. Yes. And sometimes the cataclysmic thing you can't recover from, you know? So, so you have a stroke, you end up with stage four cancer. So if you're listening to this or watching this and you're healthy right now, this is your best shot for staying that way. And if you're watching this and you're not healthy, this is your best shot for surviving. So don't squander it. Don't squander it. Do it now. Do it now. It could have been three words, but you stretched it out. <laughs> that's, that's Everything with you requires an explanation. So <laughs> that's really great advice. I'll, I'll cancel the McDonald's for lunchtime. And I'll get something else instead. <laughs> No McDonald's for you. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Pam Popper, thank you so much for coming on to the show. It's been a it's been a real blast. I've really enjoyed it. When I um when I saw what you had done, I thought, wow, this is going to be fantastic. But the talk's been so colourful, so um, valuable. Uh, thank you. It's been amazing. And and thank you for uh, no, it must be late where you are now. So thank you for staying up late and for uh, Oh, I'm I'm gonna work for two more hours. This yeah. it's ten o'clock at night. I don't go to bed at ten. I get, I've got more stuff to do. I'm just getting started for the evening shift. <laughs> <laughs> well you take care. You take care. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been really fantastic having you with us. Thank you. Okay. Okay, bye bye. Bye. And bye everyone watching this video. <laughs> Thank you.